Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the Demcast Network. I'm Kimberly Johnson in D.C., quarantined. Today, my guest is Chrissy Stroop. She's a prominent ex-evangelical writer, speaker, and advocate. She's co-editor of the essay anthology Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church, a senior correspondent for Religion Dispatches. Her work has appeared in Day Magazine, Foreign Policy, Playboy, and the Moscow Times. Boy, is she impressive. She holds a PhD in modern Russian history from Stanford University, and in 2019, Christy came out as a transgender woman and began her journey of a medical transition. So we pretty much talk about all that stuff. (laughs) We talk about uh, religion. We talk about her time in Russia, which is so fascinating to me because I spent time in Soviet Russia. And we did also kind of talk about how her upbringing and all of that uh, affected her as a, a woman who eventually came out as a transgender woman. But we also talk about hormone replacement therapy. So we pack a lot into this show today. Before we get into the show, I'm just going to go over all the stuff that I go over. If you're you know, an older listener and you've heard it all before, go ahead and scroll through to the interview. But if you haven't ever listened to the show before, I ask that you just take a listen to all this stuff and then we get right into it. And then I do an outro. So after my conversation with Chrissy... I stay on and I add some stuff and I do have a little bit to say about a video that I was in and I I posted an impromptu patrons only show yesterday. So be sure to listen to that. But anyway, don't forget that I am now an Amazon associate and I always include a link in the text description of each show on Patreon. When you shop on Amazon, please use that link because I'm a participant in the Amazon Services Associates program and as an Amazon associate, I earn from qualifying purchases. Now you might notice that when you click on the link that I have provided, you will see product. It's The Melt, which is a book my mom wrote and it is a book about a global pandemic caused by climate change. Can you believe it? It came out this summer. <laughs> she started writing it in December of 2016. So I guess she's kind of psychic, right? Anyway, so take a listen to today's show. If you like it, go to the front page of my Patreon, the about page, just patreon.com slash start me up. Look at all the people I've interviewed. Check out my format. Mostly I'm political. Sometimes I interview actors, but either way, you could sign up. You could become a patron. If you like the show, start with two bucks a month. You could afford two bucks a month, right? And then and I know some people can't, so don't don't yell at me and tell me why. If you can't afford it, I don't need your money. If you can't afford it, I totally understand. But it is just two bucks a month just to get basically the shows delivered to your email box. And then if you want to upgrade later, you can upgrade later. So let me explain how I do this and some changes that are coming in November. First of all, I do two free shows, Monday and Wednesday, every week. And then I do two patrons only shows every month. One of those patrons only shows is for all patrons, meaning if you signed up for a buck or more, you get that delivered to your email box as well as the free shows. If you sign up for $5 or more, then you get the second show. So if you're, if you like, if you're somebody who's subscribed for $4 a month, then you will get the one patrons only show and every free show. If you sign up for $5 a month, you get everything. Two free shows a week, and then the two patrons only shows a month. But wait, there's more. (laughs) I'm adding, starting in November, I'm going to be doing separate outros. So I'm going to have to come up with a name. Please forgive me using the term outro. There's intro and outro. So I'm going to be recording myself after I have my guest on. 
the way it's going to work is I'll do my show. I'll have the intro. We'll do the, the bulk of the show. And then I'll tell my guest, tell us where they can find you. I'll give my, you know, handle for Twitter and all that good stuff. And then we'll just end it. And then I will go on and record maybe 15 minutes of me just talking about whatever, what I thought of the interview, um, stuff that might be going on in my own personal life, whatever I feel like. I'm just going to talk about whatever I feel like. So that's going to be on the $5 tier starting in November. So to recap, for $4 or less per month, you get all the free shows delivered to your email box as well as the as one patrons only show. If you sign up for $5 or more, you get everything. You get the outros, you get the the patrons only shows and the free shows. So it's a big fat Kimberly Johnson bonanza. <laughs> Just visit patreon.com slash start me up. You can see all of the tiers that I've created, but you don't have to stick to it. You could click on the $2 tier and change that dollar amount to $750 a month. You could do anything you want with it. Just keep that in mind. I also include a, my email address so that if anybody who wants to make a one-time donation, uh, just look in the Patreon description of the show. And I always have my email address there. You can do that with PayPal. Some people prefer to just do a one-time payment, whatever works for you. You can also find Start Me Up on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. Don't forget, don't forget to stop by. You go th- it's the app is iTunes, but the site is Apple Podcasts. And you become a subscriber for free. Please Will you please become a subscriber for free? And then while you're there, you could just give the show a rating and then a review. And don't forget, I love reviews. Reviews are what keeps authors and podcasters going. So we always need review. You don't need to write a whole book about it. You just need to say, hey, I love this show or I love this book. Whatever it is, we authors and podcasters need reviews. So just keep that in mind. I, I want to... I want to remind everybody that I do see you guys listen to me and you give me those ratings and reviews. So thank you. I always appreciate it. I say it every show and I don't, I I don't ever want it to come off as sounding um, insincere. It's always incredibly sincere because I love the show. I love you guys. I love the show. I love all of it. So, all right, that's it. I'm going to go over to my conversation with Chrissy Stroop. Welcome to the show, Chrissy. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Kimberly. It's great to be here. Well, you're really an interesting individual. I mean, the, <laughs> let me just say that the way I was introduced to you is somebody had suggested that you should be on the show. And I took a look at your feed and, you know, the things that you write about, which is basically uh, you are an ex-evangelical who grew up in Indiana, which we'll get to in a minute. But mm. I thought, mm, and, and I mean, you have this crazy uh, resume. You, you, you're really impressive. You have, uh, <laughs> I, I'm just letting you know, you, you impress me. The, the articles that you've written in such various publications, especially, and I want to ask you about the Moscow Times, but um, everything you write <laughs> is really thoughtful and interesting. And so I can't wait to jump in, which I will do right now. Um, well, uh, thank you so much. You're, you're too kind. <laughs> well, I'm just telling the truth. And I, you know what? I like to have people, I like to tell people, uh, that I think they're valuable because I don't think we do that enough. And, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've been accused by some of my listeners as being a fangirl of some of my guests. Yes, I'm talking to you, Andrew. Um, but I am. You know, I mean, I, I think that it's important that we acknowledge some, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how much, I don't know how many people know of you. Uh, hopefully more people will know of you, bef- you know, after they listen to this show. Uh, but you should definitely get the credit that you deserve because, again, impressive, really impressive. Um, and I actually stole your bio from 
I, I don't know, some publication that, you know, I read in the intro, but it's like, wow, <laughs> you've, you've written for Playboy too. It's like, whoa. It's a very weird life. <laughs> but it's awesome. I, I, I know. I mean, I, I was, I was a, I mean, I consider myself a writer, but I, I was kind of like the accidental writer. I had put together with my mother a book called The Virgin Diaries, where we interviewed people about what it's like to have sex for the first time. And hmm. that led to another book, which we, we were referring to. I mean, it's an anthology, but we were calling them reality books because it was just like real life experiences. And we did not want to we didn't want to go the traditional route where, you know, we put in our two cents because we're not psychologists and Basically, I had, you know, I wanted to put that book together for virgins like me, you know, who didn't know anything and wanted the inside scoop of mm -hmm. not so much the physical, but the emotional, um, what, what it felt like emotionally to do it. And, you sure. know, so anyway, um, I started off with those books, which led to me blogging uh, political stuff. And then, you know, it led to a couple more books. I wrote a book about teen abortion. But I, you know, as much as I, I know I am a writer, I've written and it's out there, but I don't consider myself uh, like that lifelong writer who went to school for it. And mm -hmm. I don't, I just don't have that experience. So it's funny because I much prefer doing this and I, I still write, but it's like doing these shows and meeting people like you is really, it's exciting to me and asking questions and you know, delving into these subjects. And this subject that we're going to talk about today is so fascinating because it's an, it's religion and it really fits with the proceedings <laughs> going on right now with as... Uh, Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, as with Amy COVID Barrett, as I'm going to call her from now on. So just, I, I <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I like that. It's got, it's got a ring to it. <laughs> oh um, my goodness. Yeah, okay. well, I, can, I can really relate to all the things that you're saying there. I did for part of my childhood say I was going to be a writer, imagining myself to be, you know, some, some great novelist in a kind of traditionalist mode or something. But then I decided to become an academic because that was going to be the safe route right. that would allow yeah. me to have a, you know, comfortable middle-class life while um, getting to do some writing and, you know, hopefully getting to be increasingly creative as I got tenure and everything. But turns out I'm, you know, I was never able to get that first tenure track job. I'm like what I, what I like to call one of the Academy's throwaway PhDs <laughs> these days. So, so that, but that then gave me the life experience, I think, to become a more authentic writer. Mm -hmm. And really yeah. writing isn't uh, so much about going to school for it as, as it is about having things to write about. Yeah. Uh, you do have to hone your craft, yes. obviously. I'm not saying don't hone your craft, but you know. Um, if you, if you don't have the life experience to have some content there mm -hmm. and then some time, I think to, to process it, you're yeah. just not going to write profound things. Um, so you know, true. they say write from your scars, not your, not your wounds. I think yeah. that's important too, particularly thinking about religion and fundamentalism and people who come out of it. And, and like you, I'm interested in collecting people's stories both for, because I think they're interesting, but also because, and, and valuable, but also because I think they can help other people. Yeah. And so you talked about helping virgins. Um, that's very relevant to, you know, um, evangelical purity mm -hmm. culture mm -hmm. and the lack of proper sex education, mm -hmm. the indoctrination and the fear mongering that you get instead and, and the shaming. Um, and, uh, you know, with Empty the Pew's stories of leaving the church, Lauren O'Neill's and my co-edited co -edited anthology of personal essays uh, that came out late last year. Um, that's that's kind of what we did. You mm -hmm. know, we collected people's stories. We also 
uh, wrote a kind of quasi-academic introduction, and we also both contributed essays to it as former conservative Christians. Hmm. Wow. So, yeah, okay. I mean, that's fascinating in and of itself that you did that essay, uh, the, the book of essays. Um, so I guess the first thing I want to ask you, just let's go over your background. You said, you know, you, you grew up in, in the Christian right, um, and, and conservative, and you say here you were educated in Indianapolis and Colorado Springs. Is that mm-hmm. cor- okay? And, and you say, um, was on what I call the elite cultural warrior track. <laughs> and then <laughs> right. you always felt off, different and uncomfortable. So let's just get into that a little bit. Tell us about your life growing up there. Sure. Uh, well, you know, when I, when I say I was on the elite culture <laughs> warrior track, what I mean is that I was, you know, the, the kind of person who was supposed to become an Amy Coney Barrett or a wow. Matt Staver at Liberty Council, you know, um, or the kind of person who, who funds them or a missionary or, or something like that, right? Yeah. So I went to the kind of private Christian schools that usually refer to themselves as Christian schools or Christian academies that are run by evangelicals, uh-huh. uh, where they do in some ways give you a good education that actually prepares you to navigate uh, the world and particularly, you know, institutions, um, maybe secular colleges, definitely the political system. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are also, you know, sort of fly-by-night church schools uh, and homeschooling curricula that simply don't do that at all, yeah. right? That just leave you with a terrible education and everything, and you're <laughs> totally unable to function in society outside of the conservative Christian community, which is by design. Mm-hmm. And But, you know, which uh, there are, of course, many kind of social mechanisms for keeping you in the fold, whether you're on the elite track or the let's call it the more popular fundamentalist track. Um, we were still definitely fundamentalists. Our mm-hmm. school taught us, you know, both um, Christian nationalism and, and young earth creationism. And mm-hmm. how did that manifest? Well, at Heritage Christian School in Indianapolis, uh, in elementary school, and I, I think they did it in the middle school too, but we ended up moving, moving to Colorado Springs in the middle of my sixth grade year so I don't remember or know too much about middle school there mm-hmm. back in the back in the 90s. But we said three pledges every morning, not just the pledge to the American flag. That was the first one we mm-hmm. said. But then we also said pledges to the Christian flag wow. and the Bible. Wow. And these pledges have phrases in them with things like with life and liberty for all who believe. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, they're very anti-pluralist. Yes. You know, Um these are anti-democratic pledges. Yeah. And, and we had talent shows um, that were, they were school-wide talent shows when I was in elementary school at Heritage Christian School in Indianapolis, founded in 1965. And Heritage means everything you think it means. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, at the end of these talent shows, there would be like a sing-along with the audience and the participants. And the sing-along would be to Lee Greenwood's God bless the USA, oh which is just God. a god awful song. <laughs> I know I that I song. I remember all the words. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the last time I heard it, though, I think it was the last time I heard it, was a couple of years ago in Wikiwachi, Florida, with my parents. Did you know they have mermaid shows down there? Really? Uh, it's one of these. I'm sorry, oh this god. is a total like, weird little rabbit trail. But I kind of have a, an interest in 1960s roadside attractions that still <laughs> exist <laughs> and, and i lived in florida from 2015 to 2018 wow. i taught at the university of south florida as a postdoc and a um 
visiting instructor and I was hoping that would lead to getting a permanent job in academia. And after mm. that, I just gave, gave up on academia and decided to, to give it a go as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, anyway, so there are, there's, there's this little park where um, women perform as mermaids in these kind of like, um, you know, natural, beautiful, deep water springs and, and, and formations. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, there it's it's kind of neat underwater choreography. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they occasionally breathe out of tubes, like when, when they need to. Mm-hmm. They 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 have little gimmicks, like they eat apples underwater or whatever. But uh, so we <laughs> just saw so their weird. sort of like basic performance. They also do variations of like fairy tales and maybe movies that people have seen. But it ended with a patriotic underwater dance to "God Bless the Oh US. my God! <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. That's crazy. Ended ended with the mermaid unfurling this giant underwater flag, which I think breaks flag protocol in yeah. many ways. But um... <laughs> oh my god, that's so crazy. That's just insane. Uh, yeah, um, Americans are nuts, man. Yeah, we really are. We are a strange freaking country. Um, you know, you mentioned to me because I lived in Russia. I lived in Soviet Russia when I was 12 years old. I attended the Anglo-American school. I was in seventh grade, and that was, you know, ba- my basic experience was as of a a, a seven. Uh, I'm sorry, a 12 year old understanding. Uh, what communism was because I was viewing it, but at the same time I was also not necessarily mature enough to fully grasp it. And I, mm-hmm. you know, but I, but I grasped enough. I had enough of whether it was, you know, like my father explaining things to me or some really good teachers talking about what, you know, the differences between America and and Russia. In fact, I always say that living in Russia made me an American patriot. Like I hadn't, you know, I, as a 12 year old, I hadn't thought in terms of patriotism. I was not raised religious. Neither one of my parents are religious. So I was never in any kind of a situation like you. The closest thing was like when my mom moved us to California in 1977, I stayed with her mother, my grandmother for the summer. And she was, she's cat. She was Catholic. She's gone now, but you know, she would take me to church every Sunday morning Mm-hmm. And that was about, and I have a story to tell you uh, about that later when I bring it up on sure. the subject of hell. But, uh, you know, outside of that, I was not raised with any religion. But anyway, so mm-hmm. when I lived in Russia, I had that experience of seeing what a communist country was like. And so you said to me that you've gone over there several times. So I'm curious about your experience. And like, obviously, it seems to me that you would have gone over there after the fall of the Soviet Union. So yeah. What's the deal? I didn't get there till 1999. Oh, okay. So how, what, how did you g- get over there? What was the deal? Yeah. Well, let me kind of connect the dots between some of these things. Cause you, when you bring up Soviet schools, you know, after I was talking about our school with its three pledges and it's, um, talent shows and, and that sort of thing, I actually think that, you know, in terms of it being in, ideology factory Mm -hmm. it was probably very similar to a a late soviet school i i mean i do have a phd in modern russian history not an expert in in late soviet history or the history of education but i certainly know something from personal experience Mm -hmm. about intense political indoctrination Mm -hmm. um so you know and then the thing with colorado springs was my dad took a job at a mega church inspired church plant they mm-hmm. call it which is like a startup church you know it has seed funding from a bigger church organization mm-hmm. uh, which in this case was the missionary church and so he was going to be the music pastor at one of these cool hip churches that are 
not your grandma's church. And, right. you know, they had the church is a rock show. I ran an old analog light board at that church sometimes as a volunteer. Hmm. Um, they rebrand the, uh, the, the, the bulletin is a program, you know, that kind of thing, but it's all the same terrible right-wing <laughs> ideology and they can, they can be a little bit loose about some theological specifics, mm-hmm. uh, you know, dogma or what Protestants are more likely to call doctrine. They can be like, oh, yeah, well, um, you know, some I, some people believe that, you know, infant baptism is super, super important. And I think that's right, but it might not be a salvation issue or, you know, even more so with things like predestination or, or um, you know, free will. And people will be like, you know, that's complicated. God left some things complicated in the Bible, but stopping the gays and banning abortion is totally not complicated at all. Also, young earth creationism, hmm. um, you know, so, and voting Republican. So those things like kind of put you in the, the true Christian club, hmm. you know, and, and I definitely got that sense from my school in Indianapolis, too. And this is leading up to my first experience with with Russia. So um, there was some bad blood, some, you know, church power politics fallout with my dad and hmm. um the guy who was the youth pastor at the church in Colorado Springs, who was also from Indiana. So they both moved their families back and started their own little church plant that also failed that then they, then they stopped being friends. But, you know, <laughs> um, there was a lot of ugliness in there, but um, anyway, we were back in Indiana and I went back to heritage Christian school for high school. My mom is still a teacher there. Um, wow. And anyway, at heritage, as I said, I got certain opportunities that, uh, kids in certain kinds of right-wing fundamentalist Christian curricula do not get. So, you know, they offered AP classes, for example. And um, so I took AP English and AP Biology. Yes, AP Biology. And our uh, AP Biology teacher, he was also my chemistry teacher, and he taught physiology and AP chemistry, but I didn't take uh, those. I did take regular chemistry. Um, he was this kind of apocalyptic mystic. And he would start his days with devotionals that he would call thoughts and they would just ramble on forever. And they would usually, at least in the fall, be about how, you know, did you hear they're genetically engineering red heifers and uh, the sin is increasing in the world. It's the year of Noah. And I had this dream. I was before the wide throne of judgment. And he would go on like oh this. My God. And, you know, he would get to the point, which was that Christ is probably coming back this year around Yom Kippur. Oh, my God. <laughs> but this is an AP class. And so you have to have a standard AP secular textbook. Wow. Right. So so this man, Stephen Terry, refused to teach us the evolution chapters. However, he told us explicitly read them at home, regurgitate them for the exam. He did not want us giving young earth creationist answers on that exam, even though he showed us young earth creationist quote-unquote documentaries and, you know, quote-unquote documentaries about flood geology, you know, the whole idea that, like, Noah's flood formed all the geological layers and oh stuff um, so that it, it could happen in a wow. short amount of time instead of the, like, the long scale of geologic time. And like all this wacky stuff while we were also doing um, labs with recombinant DNA trying to like breed some bacteria that would glow under a blacklight. Uh, <laughs> so, so he told us to go – Read the, the evolution chapters and regurgitate them. And I mean, what lesson can you draw from that? Except that lying for Jesus is okay wow. when it is about advancing your career and gaining power. I mean, what other conclusion can you draw? Yeah. So, uh, so I had that kind of opportunity. They also had very good English instructors who taught me to formulate my thoughts 
well, clearly and concisely in the form of an argument, taught me how to write. I got a great foundation there in writing in English. And we were even taught to identify certain logical fallacies and so forth, all for the purpose of Christian apologetics, which mm -hmm. we were taught in our Bible classes. And you were supposed to never take those intellectual tools, which are valid tools of reasoning, and turn them back around and all the bullshit that, course, you, were right. being, that well, do, you were being taught. When you, you, know, were, you when were, you were only supposed to use it to defend the bullshit. Right, right. When you were being taught all this and you were younger, I mean, did were you hook, line, and sinker in, involved? I mean, did you buy it all? Were you questioning it? What was your thought process when you were younger, specifically? Well, weirdly... I would say I was definitely all in as a little kid. I loved singing Christian songs. Mm -hmm. I loved singing patriotic songs. That was fun. Um, I felt very intensely that there are these horrible liberals everywhere out there murdering babies and we have wow. to stop them because they drill this into your right. head. From the time yeah. you're like five years old, you're like, oh, my God, the babies. <laughs> like, <laughs> How can these liberals kill babies? And they right. take you to anti-abortion protests and stuff. I mean, I think. I was only taken to one that I recall, and I was 11, and we were bused there by our church where my dad was the music pastor. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's nuts. Like, before that, we were definitely involved with uh, helping these deceptive crisis pregnancy centers, oh, which right, distribute yeah. disinformation and maybe some diapers and mm -hmm. try to, you know, talk women out of abortions very, very aggressively. Mm -hmm. Again, using the same kind of fear-mongering and disinformation tactics that I got on uh, the, the quote-unquote sex education that I got, mm -hmm. which, you know, was basically diseases, diseases, pregnancy, pregnancy, condoms never work. Uh, wow. sex, sexual sin is a huge problem. Um, and even stuff like, you know, um, don't do anything with a um, boyfriend or girlfriend that you wouldn't do with somebody else's spouse because you probably won't marry them someday. And then you're both cheating on each other's future spouses. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. No, I mean, I am really um, ignorant when it comes to a lot of this. As I said, I was not raised this way. In fact, my mother grew up Catholic. And so I'm gonna, I want to bring up the health thing now because my mom was raised Catholic. She did get the benefit of Catholic schools. And, you know, she was kind of like a natural type A personality. So she was always doing – she always did very well, always – and but, you know, and, and I, I unfortunately, my education was public California school system in the 80s. So totally different than Catholic school in like the 50s, 60s when she was growing up. Um, mm -hmm. You know, she got a really good education. To, that's what I'm trying to say. But, um, you know, she rejected religion at a very early age. I think part of the reason, you know, or, or at least part of her awakening to this was when she was young. And I mean, young, I, I like single digit age. I think one of the nuns had said, if, if you're, if one of your parents are not Catholic, you're, that parent will go to hell. And mm -hmm, so her mm -hmm. father, I don't remember what he was, but he wasn't Catholic. Her mother was Catholic, my grandmother. So, um, and, and I saw you, I, I Googled you and I found a video and I didn't watch the whole thing, but it was you talking to two other people and you were talking about the concept of hell. And I'd like to ask you about that. But before I do, my experience, you know, I mean, I live, I lived with my grandmother for the summer when my mom, it was 1977. I was nine years old. My mom moved out to California. So I stayed with my grandmother while my mom got situated because we were from Maryland originally, which is where mm -hmm. I live now. Anyway, so, uh, 
my grandmother would take me to church every Sunday. And, you know, I mean, I had an okay time. Just like with you, there was this, this memory I have of standing on the pew and rocking out to rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. And, you know, I was like rocking out like I was at a concert. I was having so much fun. And I, I <laughs> did enjoy the music, singing and all of that. The rest of it, I just tuned out. But I do remember there was this one particular time where my grandmother had some kind of business somewhere on the other side of town, downtown, wherever we were, I don't know. But because we had to leave early, we fi- you know, she figured, okay, well, we'll go to church here instead of her regular church. So mm-hmm. we went to this different church, and the priest who was normally there was out sick, and the fill-in priest told everybody that we had to pray for the sick priest, and if we didn't, we were going to go to hell. And I was, oh I, I remember I was like nine and I'm like, what? And I thought this is bullshit. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't say bullshit to myself, but I, I thought it was a crock of shit. And I asked my grandmother who I got to say, she was the best kind of religious person because she took everything positive and, and rejected the negative. She never pushed her religion on anybody. I mean, I had to go with her cause I was nine, but if I were older, I know she would have let me stay at home alone. So she just didn't want me to be home alone. But I mean, she never pushed, she never, you know, injected. She mm-hmm. always just, mm-hmm. she was just kind and loving. That's it. And, uh, so I said to her, you know, what, after that experience, I said, do you agree with that priest? And I remember she, she only, she like kind of looked down and she went, no, like she was like, she thought, oh my, she, she didn't want to talk uh-huh. about him to me, but I could tell that she thought he was full of shit too. So mm-hmm. but I, I saw mm-hmm. you talking about the idea that they scared you to death with the idea of hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hell certainly did become a, a big hang up for me. And I mean, I had a lot of terror about this as a little kid as well when i sort of like first you know prayed the prayer with my dad and got saved mm-hmm. um you know lots of anxiety about whether you know i had really done it right or mm-hmm. would i really go to heaven and just so much fear of this terrifying concept of hell that they present mm-hmm. and my parents now will, will be like oh we never really emphasized hell to you mm-hmm. it's like maybe maybe that's true let's let's you know admit for the sake of argument Let's say, let's say that you're correct. Uh, you didn't have to because the rest of the environment around us did, you know? Yeah. Um, and I internalized this in a way that was just terrifying and also really kind of makes you hate yourself. Hmm. Um, so, you know, yeah, I remember in early childhood being kind of all in, but the older I got, uh, and I always was doing some reading outside of, you know, strictly evangelical literature, which it does exist. I mean, you can live your whole life in a, in a fundamentalist subculture consuming only the cultural products mm-hmm. of that subculture uh, or very few products from, from outside it. But my parents didn't really limit my reading. Although even when I was well over 20, I remember my mom seeing me with a Richard Dawkins book and she was like, why are you reading that? <laughs> so she wasn't like above shaming me occasionally. <laughs> there, there, there were things that I, um, you know, maybe wouldn't have, no, definitely would not tell my parents about like the mm-hmm. time that I was with my friend, uh, Eric in Colorado Springs and bought green days, 1993 kind of going mainstream album dookie. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> but I also don't, don't think they would have like necessarily banned it. Just better right. not to ask. You know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, wow. Interesting. Um, but so, I mean, by that time, the time that we moved to Colorado, I definitely had some questions about things 
And so and interestingly, I ended up in a public school for the second half of sixth grade um, because of just the way that we moved over there in the middle of the school year in like January 1993. And my dad had already been there for a little while. So I start the semester at this um, pretty great public school. Um, I mean, it had, you know, it had woodshop, it had all kinds of electives, very nice facilities. And I got normal sex education hmm. and I got taught, taught about evolution and I was starting to, you know, consider myself a theistic evolutionist hmm. until that, that was drummed out of me again. And, you know, and then the next year when I want to stay in the public school, because even though I, you know, my mom says with some justification, you complained about that school every day. <laughs> well, yeah, because you moved me across the country in the middle <laughs> of sixth grade. And yeah, I was a kid who was not, right. you know, like super enthusiastic about sudden changes. Right. And also I was a fish out of water <laughs> after my elementary school in weird Christian school, but yeah. okay. So, you know, by the end of the school year, I wanted to stay and ended up being forced to go to Colorado Springs Christian school, which was even more extreme than heritage Christian school in really? Indianapolis. And my mom also taught there. And these are, these are K through 12 schools um, in, in both cases. Uh, so, you know, and actually my mom, I don't know if they would have let me stay in the public school, if not for my mom's job, mm -hmm. but, um, when you work for a Christian school, generally the expectation is that you send your children there. And I think it used mm -hmm. to be standard for teachers at least to have full tuition waivers, but now it tends to be discounts mm -hmm. and they can increase with seniority. So it, it, it's quite a scam, but I think they, they also think it doesn't look good mm -hmm. if the teachers don't send their kids to those schools. Now, these schools do require tuition, and this often means that the teacher's kids are not as rich as the other kids who go there, which creates a whole other interesting layer. Because, um, you know, people who work in ministry don't get paid that well. Um, and that's how my mom has always viewed working for Christian schools. They pay worse than public schools, but she believes in the, the mission of it. Um, so, yeah, so I'm back in Christian school. And, and then I think the first time I remember really just feeling really uncomfortable or like sitting with my discomfort. It's not that I'd never had discomfort and questions before, mm -hmm. but they were easier to put behind me was when we were taken in seventh grade on a quote unquote retreat day you know, where we basically had, you know, fear-mongering purity culture thrown at us all day. Hmm. All that stuff about, you know, condoms can't prevent AIDS, condoms fail, don't cheat on your future spouse, you know. And then, you know, they end with, uh, we're all sitting in, in, like, I think the boys and girls were separated for part of it, as far as I recall. But then we're all sitting in, like, these bleachers at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly what facility, though, and we're hearing, like, the final spiel. And... You know, it's it's really heavy on the emotional manipulation. Mm -hmm. And so then they they end with and, you know, now we'd like to invite you all to prayerfully consider uh, signing a purity pledge. Oh, my God. And so the purity pledges get distributed. And this just might be my memory coloring it. But I think they were playing like, you know, emotionally like tear jerky music. Mm -hmm. But that's all that always happens in church with altar calls. But I'm not 100 percent sure that happened. But I, they probably were playing some music because it's kind of awkward to just sit by yourself in silence. And so we were all supposed to go sit by ourselves with the purity pledge and only sign it if we could really commit. 
um, which is really, how do you know mm-hmm. as a third, as a 13 year old, yeah. but, um, or 14 or whatever I was. So, um, but you sign it of course, cause you're, mm-hmm. you're not sure if you would get expelled if you didn't. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. If you are a Christian teach Christian school teacher's kid and you don't want to go to those schools, really the only way out is to get expelled. But I was never going to do that. Yeah. You know? I was just not that kind of, of kid. Uh, so that just made me really uncomfortable. Yeah. And then when I got, when we moved back to Indiana and I started at high school, my discomfort with hell and things like that just really started to increase. And I think it increased more and more the more I met people from outside our circle. So mm-hmm. with trying to keep people mostly in that social world where mm-hmm. maybe Christian school or your homeschool collective and then church is pretty much the entire basis of your social world uh, is, is really effective for keeping people in the fold. Because when you meet people, from outside it and you like them, you really don't want them to, to go to hell. So yeah, that became an issue for me in my teenage years. And then how this all comes back to Russia is, uh, that, well, I ended up actually going on, uh, an educational trip to Europe, which was another opportunity that I had, um, with, that was or- organized by our German teacher. Cause I was taking German to mostly German speaking Europe. She had us do homestays in Germany, with, you know, sufficiently evangelical by American definitions of the term Mm -hmm. Christian Germans. Um, And then we met up with a tour group and we got to do one of those bus tours, you know. Hmm. And uh, so I had that educational experience, which was eye-opening in some ways, even though you didn't see that much, you know. Mm -hmm. We saw how different things were and how different, like, the politics of these German Christians were, even though they were Christians like us, like Mm -hmm theologically conservative Christians and uh, that they have universal health care and that sort of thing. It makes you think like, Oh, yeah. maybe that's possible. Right. And maybe that's not anti-Christian <laughs> right. <laughs> to have, you know, which we were taught it was, you know, because it's idolatry to get that kind of help from, from the state. Uh, wow. You can only rely on God. So oh my God. anyway, so my senior year um, around spring of my senior year, this uh, the middle school orchestra director who I didn't even know I wasn't there for most of the middle school I was never in orchestra, but they all the teachers know each other from the faculty meetings. So he came up to me in the hallway. I vaguely knew who he was, and um, he said, "Hey, I heard from your mom that you're interested in international travel and foreign languages and that kind of stuff." And I was like, uh, "I guess so." <laughs> and so he uh, asked me if I would uh, want to go on a mission trip to Russia with him wow. that summer that he was helping organize through an organization called OMS International that used to stand for Oriental Missionary Society. Um, <laughs> they, they trace their roots to, uh, you know, the kind of missionary activity done by Hudson Taylor in China. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they had changed it by that time to just initials. So it's like, you know, the missionary organization formerly known as Oriental mm-hmm. Missionary right, Society, yeah. whatever. Okay. Uh, but they didn't change it as far as it was explained to me by someone who worked there anyway, who may or may not have really been an official, like, you know, able to speak to this officially, but I, I imagine it was probably the general line because fundamentalists really are this ridiculous. So I, I was told that they changed it to just initials because, um, not because they had any problem with the name Oriental Missionary Society, but because they had expanded their mission beyond the Orient. Hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
I'm, sometimes, sometimes evangelical Christians can be savvy about their rebranding. Right. I'm not sure <laughs> that they really were at, at that time. But now, though, now they've rebranded as One Mission Society, and they have a very oh. slick website with a ticker in the upper right corner that tracks how many souls they've supposedly saved that year. Huh, it's, uh, it's it's something else. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, long story short, I well actually it's already long. I guess that's um, <laughs> how I ended up going to going to Russia for the first time and getting interested in Russia was as a missionary and you know I, a, a short term youth missionary in a summer camp that we called an English camp, um, where our job was to tutor people in English by remarkably reading English translations of passages from the Bible. Because that's very pedagogically sound and super useful vocabulary. <laughs> but, I mean, mostly we hung out with them and had worship services, and we also had to share our testimonies and got some great rural Russian experiences. Yeah. But that really shaped my future trajectory. And for people who want to know more about that story and how just seeing what I will just call uh, missionary shenanigans – up close, you know, again, seeing how the sausage is made to some degree, um, just like I saw growing up as a kid of a music pastor and a Christian mm -hmm. school teacher, was very disillusioning. And for people who want to read the rest of that story, it's what I wrote about in uh, Empty the Pews stories of leaving the church. Oh, interesting. But so that's how I got interested in Russia. And then I went back and um, I taught English in Vladimir, Russia oh. for a year. So I lived in this very provincial cool. capital. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then... Um, that I wanted to do that before going to grad school and also to date a Russian girl that I met at the camp there. But um, <laughs> anyway, that's really interesting. And I mean, I can't even imagine what it must be like uh, to I, I think it would be so surreal for me to visit visit Russia now. I've seen a couple like, for instance, Anthony Bourdain has gone. Well, he's no longer with us. But when he was, he went to Russia a couple of times and just. I watched, uh, I think it was his first, I can't remember what his first show was called, but anyway, uh, it was his first show and he was over there. So I don't know the date. It might've been 2007, something like that, but it was so mm -hmm, weird for mm -hmm. me because I could see yeah. the Western influence where when I was there, there was no Western influence. It was just drab communism, drab mm -hmm. Soviet uh, you know, everything was drab. I mean, even when we had sunny days, it it's interesting because I would watch, I've, you know, been to Red Square so many times. So I would see them standing in Red Square, which has not changed. There is no change. And it would be a sunny day. <laughs> and it, And I felt like, I felt like it wasn't authentic because even during the sunny days, it just seemed so drab. And it was it's mm -hmm. just like my recollection of that country was, uh, mm -hmm. you know, dark and kind of, um, well, drab is the best word. Every, every all the colors yeah. were dull. Well, there's still a lot of you know, like long, gray, mm -hmm. exhausting concrete spaces. Yes, in, in, in Moscow. And if you're outside, uh, you know, the the right downtown area where there are a lot of metro stations close to you, um, just walking on that pavement mm -hmm. over these mm -hmm. massive spaces to get where you're going is exhausting, particularly yeah. in rainy or cold weather. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, Moscow, uh, I lived in Moscow then for from uh, 2012, 2015, actually teaching at a Russian university with uh, the hopes of coming back to the uh, American academic job market or European um, with a tenure track job. And so I had an, an uh, you know, a front row seat to all mm -hmm. the major geopolitical changes mm -hmm. 
the annexation of Crimea, which caused my uh, ruble-denominated salary to be heavily devalued while I was still trying to pay down debt in dollars, which I still am. Um, you know, the sanctions, the counter-sanctions, the disappearance of good French cheese, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of wild things. But, um, yeah, so in 1999, though, you could already see some of these things mm -hmm. changing. And I, I do regret a bit that, you know, I'm sort of too young, unless there had been some very sort of extraordinary circumstances in which I could have gone as a very young kid to the Soviet Union in the 1980s, which did not happen. Mm -hmm. I was pretty much too, too young to see the Soviet Union, so yeah. I couldn't make a direct comparison in that way. But I have seen it change quite a bit since 1999. In 1999, we stayed in the old Hotel Rossiya which was, you know, like the uh, the Soviet hotel for, for foreigners, right? Mm -hmm. The in-tourist hotel. Right, yeah. Like, like the big in-tourist hotel in, in Moscow. And it was still a very Soviet institution, and I got to experience that, including with the phone calls from, from sex workers, you know, which yeah. they used to call the, uh, the currency prostitutes because they <laughs> earned in foreign currency, and the KGB would recruit these women and, you know, promise to marry them off to some wow. Westerner in a certain number of years or whatever. Hmm. Um, you know, still with the floor attendants and you turn in your key and that way they can go in your room when you're not there and look yeah. through your stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. They, yeah, they really the like crash, doing that. <laughs> I, and, beds. Yeah. In <laughs> fact, when I, it's so great because it's right as we're talking about this, I, I received a message on Twitter from a girl that, I mean, we went to Anglo American school, so we had an American, well, it, it was a English speaking school with, um, English-speaking teachers. Some were from England, some were from America, some were from Canada. But basically, the kids who made up uh, the, you know, everyone who went to that school was, it was 80 different nationalities. So, but it was English-speaking. And I had, mm -hmm. you know, my father said to me, if I had lived there for one more year, he would have sent me to Russian school. And I said, I would have freaked out because number one, <laughs> I really liked my school. I would have lived there if I could. And I was never a school person. But this this school was different because, you know, as I explained, it felt to me back in when it was Soviet, it felt like a prison. And so I felt like a prisoner who had privileges. I got to shop in, you know, when you are a foreigner, you get to live in, in uh, apartment buildings that are a little bit nicer. You get to mm -hmm. shop in some of the better, you know, there's, there's, it was called the gastronome, which is just like a store for foreigners that most of the foodstuffs came from like Finland and stuff, you know, surrounding mm -hmm. areas, but it wasn't Russian food only. So we, fortunately I had a good mix of authentic Russia with a little bit of the perks of, you know, what mm -hmm. you get as a foreigner. Mm -hmm. But so in my school, you know, the, the friendships that were formed were deep. And I mean, I, I kind of liken it and I, and, and this is very dramatic, so I do not want to offend anybody, but I mean, I kind of liken it to like a war situation or even like drama, you know, that when, when you're in a play with people, there is this camaraderie mm -hmm. that you experience. So like when you're mm -hmm. in a war, you, you feel the same way. We felt the same way as foreigners, especially in that school, because we we were young and we even though we could understand the culture again, I think we weren't necessarily mature enough to really fully appreciate and understand. But there was still this kind of camaraderie. And so I have I never kept in touch with really anybody except for one guy that I think I think email, you know, I don't remember what date I found him on email, but it was like there was a guy I used to know 
he he was in sixth grade. I was in seventh grade. He would sit next to me in Russian class, and he was my buddy. And it's funny because he doesn't now that I, and that was I lived in California for a long time and moved back to Maryland in 2018. So it's funny because all these people now that I went to school with in Russia are very close to me. They all you know a lot of them live in Virginia because their parents were diplomats, or they are just like my dad was mm-hmm. worked for ABC News. So they're really all in this area. And so I just got this message from this girl who I you know was friendly with and and hung out with, and she's like maybe we should get together, you know, like we haven't gotten together Mm -hmm. and it's like, I'm going to have to reply and say, wait until after COVID. But, but the, the interesting thing is, is, you know, I have my pinned tweet is about Russia and basically Mm -hmm. that I think Vladimir Putin is getting too close to destroying our democracy. And so I quote tweeted myself the other day and I said, I can't wait to unpin this after the election. (laughs) And, Uh uh you know, so she came on, somebody made a joke and it's a friend of mine and made a joke and and I and acted as if uh, I didn't know what I was talking about. But I, I knew where she was coming from. But my friend from Russia, she didn't understand that it was a joke. And she's like, I lived with Kimberly, you know, or, I, you know, I was there when Kimberly was there. And, you know, we did th- this happened and, you know, we, we, we were followed. We were threatened. I was never followed. I mean, I'm sorry. I was never threatened. I, sometimes mm-hmm. I felt threatened because the militiamen on the street would eye us and y- you just never knew. But overall, as an American, I felt safe. But mm-hmm. the one thing that I used to do is I would take a strand of hair and it's like you talk about coming into the hotel room. I would like when my mom, I mean, I'm when my dad and stepmom and I would go out and the house, the apartment would be empty. I would take a single strand of hair and I would like do it an eight wrapping around cupboard. I would I would do it a, around a bunch of cupboard doors and mm-hmm. I would come home and the majority of them would be broken. So it was <laughs> clear that they were rummaging through our stuff. And, you know, it was also funny because my girlfriend who lived in the embassy we could knock on the wall and you could feel like you could kind of feel where there were um, bugs, you know, like little microphones. Mm-hmm. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, and this is so dumb. This is just so me. But I came up with this like I, I, I always was a rebel. I always wanted to rebel against them. And I, I remember coming up with this stupid story about Charms Blow Pops and how the those lollipops that have bubble gum in them and i and i was saying that the american government was going to send over all these charms blow pops to russia but they, <laughs> but they really had bombs in them <laughs> we just entertained ourselves with trying to harass guards and all the people listening in anyway but it's just it's interesting to me that you know as i'm talking to you about this russian situation my friend from russia is like hey we got to get together which is kind of mm-hmm. funny but you know i want to kind of turn the the situation i want to turn this conversation to a different um, thing because you are you identify now and you have come out in 2019 as I read as a trans woman so mm-hmm. I'm wondering about your journey and like what it was like for you know I mean how does that what was it like for you as a child as far as especially when you were hitting puberty and sexuality and all that um, and then you know what made you come out and as a woman yeah well, I didn't have language for how I felt different. Right, I can imagine, kid. yeah. I just always felt off and, and different somehow. So this was always going on with me. It did make me a very cerebral little kid huh. and kind kind of a little anthropologist in some ways. And so I think, you know, I did develop this ability to step back and look at things in their social context. And was I was eight years old, I was keeping a notebook with, like, you know, different pronunciations and different grammar that my grandparents used versus my parents, like... Hmm. In their their central Indiana sort of rural, oh, right? Yeah, um, you know, accent and stuff. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it didn't, I, I certainly wouldn't have conceptualized it in terms of gender as, as a little kid. Mm -hmm. And as I was growing up, I didn't know, um, well, you know, we talked mostly about homosexuality when it came up and just mm -hmm. how wrong it was. Um, and we also got all these masculine stereotypes and well, feminine stereotypes, just all kinds of stereotypes. You're supposed to fulfill these traditional gender roles. Yeah. Even in my teens and into my twenties, I think that I wouldn't have had, um, I certainly didn't have the language of gender theory. And if I had a concept of a transgender woman, I think the word I would have used would have been transvestite and it would have, mm -hmm. you know, imagine someone who was just like super femme in every way mm -hmm. and glamorous and only attracted to men. And I knew that wasn't me, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and in fact, like when I would get teased about not fitting into, you know, masculine stereotypes or not being particularly masculine, Oh, I also did all the theater, by the way. So I, at all the school plays and some community theater as well. And once I even played Winthrop and the Music Man in an equity house. So I know know what you're talking about with that, like, you know, sort of the strange, yeah. strange false sense of, um, you know, intimacy when yeah. you're in a play. But, um, yeah, they would tease me and I would all just kind of fall back on the fact that I liked girls. And so I would say, you know, well, I'm comfortable in my masculinity. But that right. always just meant one yeah. one thing, you know. Right. Some guy would be like, "Oh, are you still a fan of Alanis Morissette?" And I didn't even get why like that was a thing and why I wasn't supposed to be a fan <laughs> of Alanis Morissette. <laughs> but, um, and you know, and I'm singing along with like you know her awesome like angry girl yes. rock anthems, and, <laughs> and like why am I not supposed to be a fan of that? It's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> but but you know, I would just be like, "Well, I'm comfortable in my masculinity." Right. Um, That's so there was a lot of like, you know, repressed stuff going on that yeah. I just couldn't recognize until later. I right. mean, in my early 30s, I happened to develop like a, a real crush on a man that I knew he was un like unavailable. Mm -hmm. um, he was a friend of mine, but it was like super interesting. I was like, wow, that's hmm. a part of me, too, that I was not, you know, allowed to access uh -huh. for most of my life. Yeah, I still am more attracted to women than uh, than men for the most part and have been on hormonal uh, hormone replacement therapy for uh, over a year now but I also do crush on men sometimes and just <laughs> that was un that was unthinkable yeah as as a, as a kid um, you know so all I can really say is that for a very long time I just had a sense of being just different mm -hmm. and I would try on sort of new personae sometimes I think I think this is also why I liked Halloween so much because you could wear oh, costumes right, yeah, right. and you know I would like try doing something weird with my hair. I would go on a diet. I, I mean, I, I lost weight with slim fast when I was in seventh grade. They, they shouldn't have let me do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so when you, um, I'm going to ask you about the hormone replacement, replacement therapy, because I'm actually on that. And I'm just curious to, like, I, and if this is too personal, please just say this is too personal. But I'm just kind I'm of. A pretty, I'm a pretty open book. What uh, kind of hormones are are you on? Um, estriol, estradiol, or or what kind of estrogen do they give you? And then what are the effects of that? Because I have a hard time with estrogen, and I mean I'm 52. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm taking it because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get a balance and, but I'm just curious to know like how the estrogen affects you. Yeah. Well, so they call it second puberty because you do then start to develop 
uh, secondary sex characteristics of the sex that, you know, feel more matches Mm -hmm. who you are, uh, on, on the inside. Um, and it's not too late to start it in your forties or fifties or, or whenever, but it's, you know, it'd be great if, if you could recognize this earlier and Mm -hmm. be in an accepting society, um, accepting community and family and start it earlier. Um, I mean, I know I could have used a lot more like proper secular psychological counseling Mm -hmm. as a kid. And I only got taken to a counselor very, very briefly for having a too vivid imaginary friend when I was like seven or something. I had imaginary friends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, like I, I, I think with proper counseling, I would have discovered so much more about myself mm-hmm. early on and been able mm-hmm. to chart a much better course, but nobody was actually doing, you know, this stuff for kids in the eighties or almost no. nobody. Um, plus, you know, a lot of transgender women do just have this very strong sense of belonging to, uh, the opposite sex, quote unquote, um, when they're small children, but not everyone does. Mm-hmm. And not everyone has the exact same experience of dysphoria or even anything that they would call dysphoria. I do have some dysphoria. I've recognized how it kind of manifests now for for me. But anyway, so yeah, I got on estradiol to okay. start. They start you at a very low dose. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be, become what they call a therapeutic dose, but just to kind of get it into your system and get you used to it mm-hmm. for like a month. And then they up the dose and then, you know, you go three months or something and they check your levels and they up the dose again. And a lot of trans women add uh, progesterone after about mm-hmm. a year. Yeah. So I'm now on six milligrams of estradiol daily hmm. and um, also on progesterone. And to be quite honest, I forget how many milligrams. <laughs> <laughs> I just take the pill they tell yeah. me to take. <laughs> <laughs> the estradiol turned me into an angry, defensive. And it was fascinating because she, my doctor tested me on my estrogen levels and said that they were very low. So she put me on estradiol, which I'm also on estriol. And, and there's, there's differences, I guess the estriol and I'm, I'm on also very, very low doses, but the Mm -hmm. estriol, and I don't even use what they suggest, but, um, and I think partly I, I can, whether it's water weight or whatever, I think it keeps weight on me. So, um, Mm. but it's supposed to, it's, it's something that pregnant women, have a lot of estriol in their system. So it mm. plumps you up and it does, it does a bunch of things that kind of take you back to your youth. Cause I'm not so young anymore. So I, you know, yes, I admit mm-hmm. it. And, uh, you know, but it's like she, so she put me on estradiol and for the first couple of weeks I was feeling great. I had energy and I was feeling like I was able to start losing weight. Cause that's always been an issue. I, it's like ever since I've because ever since I went into, um, Oh, see, I, and I have brain fog and I forget things, um, but menopause, when I went into menopause, I noticed, you know, like my energy levels are down and all this stuff. And so I was feeling, and I was harder time losing weight. So I start taking estradiol and I'm probably on it for three weeks and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is the answer to my problems. And then one day <laughs> I used it and I was like the bitch from hell. And I mean, I was like huh. looking for a fight and my poor boyfriend, you know, I was like anything. I was just looking to fight. And then so I realized that when I so I didn't use it the next day or whatever happened, I realized when it would like wear down because I think I don't think I mm-hmm. took it every day. Um, it would start to wear off and then I would become normal again and then I'd use it and it was like the rage would come out. 
It's just like I can't huh. I can't take it. So I was just, you know, I mean, I don't I know everybody has different uh, makeups mm-hmm. and chemistries and all that. So we all act, react differently to the hormones that we're taking. But it's just, I, you know, I also take progesterone and I take testosterone, but I take such low doses. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think at this point in the game, I've pretty much found the best I can get to. But, you know, mm-hmm. we, you and I are obviously taking hormones for different reasons, but still, I mean, yeah. they affect you. You know, they have an no, effect. Yeah, it's interesting to compare and um yeah i mean weight gain as you say can can be a side effect um i don't think that's happening to me as much as i thought it might be mm-hmm. um i hate it so much i hate it I don't really, actually i don't really think it's happening at all so i guess lucky, well that's lucky you <laughs> <laughs> but um you know i mean i don't want to be fat phobic or anything no of course but... not but it's like it sucks when you make the effort because you know i mean i used to be an actress and i'm tall and i have big bones and so i've always been very, very critical of my body. I've experienced body hatred. Mm-hmm. I've talked about it a lot on the show. And, you know, I mean, I'm six foot tall and I literally have big bones. Some people say they have big bones. I have them. I have like almost my, my, I used to wear an 11 shoe, but it's pretty much gone up to 12 now. But you could see just in my clavicle, like my neck bones are huge. Not my mm-hmm. neck, but you know, I mean, they're, they're big. I have big hands, but everything is big. And so I have always, and, and when I was in Los Angeles pursuing an acting career, my body and my stature kind of got in my way. Even mm-hmm. when I was very slim, I was quite slender, but you know, I mean, I was, I weighed 155 pounds where the average actress was like five feet tall and a hundred pounds. So I just, I just felt huge. And so now that I've gone through menopause, I, you know, I gained weight and I used to know I knew how to lose weight. I started losing weight when I was like you said, it's too young to go on slim fast when you were in seventh grade. I went on my very first diet in eighth grade and I, mm-hmm. I went from five, eight, 170 pounds to f- almost six feet, 125 pounds. So and that was one year. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I went from, you know, kind of chubby girl to not hardcore chubby, but just a little chubby to like really tall and thin. And then, mm-hmm. you know, as I aged, I pretty much could say that you know, I, I was I, I had a similar body to Brooke Shields. She has better legs than I do. But I mean, as far as like her, sh- she's not small. You know, she mm-hmm. she has a large frame. But I was like Brooke Shields with boobs. I had the boobs, but, you know, I, we had a very similar <laughs> shape. So, yes, it's not fat phobic, but it's very frustrating mm-hmm. when yeah, you can't I mean, lose for weight. Myself, I'm really over diet culture now, but I do want to just get myself into like a solid exercise routine. Yeah. And it seems like every time I get started, like something just fucks it up. <laughs> like I get I get sick or something, yeah. but I really think I'm going to do it soon. I mean, with COVID, I... My depression got worse. My fatigue got worse. But Mm -hmm. yeah, regarding um, the hormone replacement therapy, a a lot of um, trans girls say that they experience a sense of euphoria when they first get on. That makes sense. uh, Yeah, I could see estrogen, and it's usually estradiol because it's like this is what your body has been missing the whole time, Mm -hmm. you know. And I didn't have exactly euphoria, but I had a much like improved sense of well-being. Hmm. Um, I had had, you know, some suicidal ideation starting to come back. Uh, that used to be a, a very, a, a thing with me for a, a very long time. It, it was frequent. Um, I would think about death. I did, I, I didn't make a plan, mm-hmm. you know, um, or very rarely did I ever start to make a, a plan and I wasn't going to follow through on anything, but I thought about death a lot. I thought it might mm-hmm. be better to be dead, mm-hmm. you know. Or I would indulge in these thoughts of nobody would miss me or, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, and I had 
largely gotten over a lot of that, particularly as I started to like embrace uh, my gender and understand myself better. And I, I understood myself to be a transgender woman at age 33. Hmm. When I was in Moscow, uh, you know, in this increasingly authoritarian post-Soviet Russia where queerness was like kind of like sort of celebrated in the media, even though it was still a very conservative country mm-hmm. and, you know, homosexuality, homosexual relationships, um, well, homosexuality, like sodomy was illegal until right, 1993. Yeah. Um, so even a couple of years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, but to where um, it was, it had become much less acceptable and much more legally persecuted, mm-hmm. you know, and um, transgender experience as well. Not exactly OK in post-Soviet Russia. Yeah. Like, yes, in, in parts of Moscow and St. Petersburg, you should be pretty safe. You can know where to go. But mostly, I can't um, even imagine that. I can't. From my my recollection of that place, to celebrate it in any way just seems like wow. That's amazing to me. That's just well, there was like you know this band, um, uh, like a a a girl duo in the early '90s called Tattoo, and they, as far as I recall, don't quote me on this. They weren't actually lesbians. They were sort of playing up like a faux lesbian aesthetic, Mm -hmm. like for the for the shock value of it. And that was like something that would just be like all over Russian radio in in the the 90s. I mean, you know, not the stations that, you know, typically play like you're only like your chanson, um, you know, which to them means like the sort of like prison culture songs and Hmm. folk song inspired sort of patriotic songs. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Not exactly what it means in French. (laughs) um, That's insane. That's crazy. You got got those you got those stations, but you have the pop stations, too. And there's a lot of Euro pop that gets played. Um, I mean, just as people in, in the Soviet Union, like many people liked rock and roll and would try to get it underground and mm-hmm. you know before it was kind of legalized by gorbachev beyond the very tame extent of legalization mm-hmm. that had happened by the early 80s uh yeah russian rock and roll and rock and roll in the end of the cold war is a whole other super interesting story unto i can only imagine because yeah i mean it's one of one of these days i'd love to be able to go back and and and, and see the difference of what it was like. I mean, obviously, I imagine it probably still looks the same, but but with the influence of Russian culture now, and, you know, I mean, I think in that one episode of Bourdain, he was going to, there was some designer, I can't remember which design, some fashion designer store, which, of course, you know, the average Russian can't shop in because it's just for the oligarchs, but, and it was ridiculously mm-hmm. expensive. There were shoes in there that were, you know, four or five times the price you would have paid for them here. So it was literally for the oligarch crowd. Um, but mm-hmm. actually, that brings me, I want to talk, uh, the last thing I want to bring up, and I, I, I had like 50 million notes that I <laughs> didn't even get to, um, but that's great because I love just going off on like natural tangents. But I wanted to ask you about, okay, with the Omi, Amy COVID Barrett situation, um, I'm, I want to know what you think as far as this situation. Okay. There's a book that I read, and, 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 and I know that a lot of people were familiar with the John Birch Society before I was, but mm-hmm. this woman, Claire Connor York, I think that's her name, wrote a book called Wrapped in the Flag. Oh, and that yeah, was, yeah. That uh-huh, was my uh-huh. introduction to 
the John Birch Society. So her father, she wrote this book wrapped in the flag and she was, she was like 2012. She was desperately trying to warn everybody about the oligarchs taking over and she wanted to explain in detail how it had come to pass and, you know, the direction they were going. So her father was one of the founding members of the of the John Birch Society, and the one of the other founding members was Fred Koch, which was the yep. father Koch. And so, you know, now, okay, so we've got the Koch brothers, and then, you know, it's interesting to me, like, they were the big, they were the, they were like, the, the big evil duo uh, that we were paying attention to, 2012, 2013, 14, 15, and then Trump came along, and it kind of thwarted the, I don't know, one of the Cokes died, one of the brothers died. And, and then it was like, all we heard about was Russian ol- oligarchs and Putin and different oligarchs around the world because they are the ones who are influencing Trump. And I've read, and I don't know too much about this, but I've read that the Koch brothers do not like, you know, what's happening with Trump, that they don't like him. And I'm, I'm sure they're trying to get what they can while he's in power, but that they don't like him. So I'm looking at this woman... And, and somebody made a comment, and this is what I want to ask you about. Somebody made a comment on one of my tweets having to do with her, and they said, you know, the Koch brothers' goal is realized or something with, with, with her um, being confirmed. So I'm just wondering, you know, wh- what is your take on her? You have a very specific point of view. You were raised in that culture. Um, do you think that she is, do you think that she is like the, is it could be a Koch brothers wet dream or do you think that they had anything to do with her getting where she is or what, like, how do you feel about her in general? Well, systemically, absolutely. They had a shit ton to do with her mm-hmm. getting where she is. Cause this is, this is all one ecosystem mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, whether or not uh, the Kochs and the people in their immediate circle like Donald Trump isn't particularly important at this point. They're, they're going to use that. use him as they can, and they still have a lot of influence through the Council for National Policy, and in, in some states, indeed, still through the uh, the John Birch Society. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very much uh, back, and I have some of my own work looks into how the John Birch Society is directly connected to the National Council for Policy with respect to uh, efforts to undermine public education, which is one of their big goals. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you have all these far-right streams coming together and this is largely a homegrown thing and the russian influence campaign is simply one element of this and and trump is not exactly a putin puppet i just i've never i've never bought that Hmm. is he heavily influenced by by russia in direct and indirect ways yes does he spout russian talking points on things yes partly because he likes dictators Mm -hmm. um because he wants to be one um partly because he's all you know up in the russian mob that's very true you know he's he's heavily connected with the Russian mob. This is this is well known. Yeah. But Trump is part of uh, a, a a toxic authoritarian ecosystem, and it's not like only one of those parts is is driving events. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the radical Christian right, the homeschool, uh, you know, radical mm-hmm. right wing mm-hmm. homeschool Christian lobby. That's hashtag not all homeschoolers don't at me. But you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> the 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 Birchers. Uh, the folks in the Council for National Policy, and, and the folks who have been there all along, funding this, like the, the, the Cokes, yeah, they're 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 getting what they they want. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you know they have an oaf overseeing it. it. Doesn't particularly matter if they have an oaf overseeing it. I mean, it only matters to the extent that it makes all the machinations more visible mm-hmm. and it makes them look bad. But look, they're still 
they're still grabbing power. Mm -hmm. um, I have done um, a fair bit of policy, published policy research into connections between uh, Russia and the far right in Europe and the United States, particularly mm -hmm. Christian right forces. Mm -hmm. And um, these have been being forged for a long time. Mm -hmm. They're also part of this ecosystem. The NRA, as we've come to learn, was a big part of it. And, mm -hmm. you know, Maria Butina at the National Prayer Breakfast and all that yeah. stuff. But but this all has has roots in a kind of love affair between the American hard right and the Russian right that actually predates the collapse of the Soviet Union. When, when you look at certain right wing figures uh, like Pat Buchanan mm -hmm. before the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, understanding that if the Soviet Union collapsed, um, Russian Christians were going to be people he could work with. They were going to be, mm -hmm. you know, more or less paleo conservatives. David Duke used to have a flat in Moscow. Maybe, uh -huh. maybe still does. He, he loves the Russians because mm -hmm. he thinks they're basically white supremacists. Mm -hmm. And yeah, well, exactly. there's, there's some truth to that. Yeah. It's a, a little more complicated um, than, than just that because the whole situation in Russia too, with uh, ethnic and religious minorities mm -hmm. is, is very different than in uh, the United States, hmm. but sure. Um, you know, there's a lot of great Russian ethnic chauvinism. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say I say great Russian, that's kind of a historical term referring to, you know, people who are Russian, but not Belarusian or not. And this is a very like pejorative term that Russian nationalists apply to Ukraine, but not little Russians. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that used to be what, what they would call Ukrainians. So, yeah, let's just say it's Russian nationalism. It's Russian ethnic chauvinism. Mm -hmm. So even if, 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 I mean, you know this, you know, there's the word Ruski for ethnic Russian yeah. and Rasiski for everything else that is of Russia, but not ethnic Russian. You right? have a great so, accent, by you the know, way. <laughs> um, you can be a Russian citizen and be an Uzbek or whatever, but you're not an ethnic Russian. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there is a lot of that chauvinism. It takes just different forms and a kind of different ethnic mix and different historical contexts. But, yeah, David Duke finds it very amenable in its right. most virulent yes. forms. Uh, so yeah, this is, there's a, this whole pattern in this history of this and it's not just the mob and Trump. It's so much of a bigger picture. And I want to stress that there's agency on both sides mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, one thing, one broad pattern that has happened is in the nineties when Russians were just so open, so much more open to kind of like exploring everything, whether it's homosexuality or Krishnaism or Mormonism, Right. Um, there's just this moment of, wow, you know, we were told so many lies. Now everything is coming to Russia and we want to experience it. We yeah. want to explore it. Um, well, at that time, there were a lot of Christian missionaries rushing in. They're evangelical missionaries, helping them build up an infrastructure and, and things like organizations to oppose abortion, which I finally, after all this time, very surprisingly, even in post-Soviet Russia, started to make some some headway with making abortions a little bit more restricted or hmm. difficult to, to fund. The church is finally starting to get a little bit of progress, the Russian Orthodox Church, from its point of view, um, in, in that regard. And it's remarkable because, of course, with the history of the Soviet Union, you know, lack of consumer goods, right, very few condoms. And so for the average Russian woman, abortion was birth control. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the way it was. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was seen as uh, pretty routine. And so in coming out of this situation to start to put any restrictions on abortion is, is huge. But you yeah. had these missionaries going in there. Um, sorry, I tend to like ramble and get off on offshoots. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, and, and trying to have an influence. And, and you actually have people uh, like... Um, Scott Lively, 
right? This, uh, you know, awful person who uh, claims credit for like the recent anti-gay law that was uh, passed in 2012 in Russia. I don't think he gets credit for it, but he was certainly trying to get Russia to hmm. go that way. Um, and then there's been a shift then since Putin's third term and since 2012, where Russia is seen as more of a, a leader and an exporter of, of this kind of culture wars. But the main venue for Russian and Western collaboration, it's not the only venue, but the main venue in pursuing this, let's call it, uh, you know, quote unquote, traditional values or family values uh, agenda is um, the, the main venue for Russians and Americans uh, to work together to pursue this kind of, quote unquote, traditionalist, uh, traditional values or family values agenda is the World Congress of Families. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's been a Russian-American project since it was founded in the 90s. So it's all just oh, a lot okay. more complicated than just putting <laughs> at the top, pulling, pulling the strings. You yeah, know, I just, yeah, I, and uh, I can that... totally see that. But, I, you know, I want to just throw in there that I, I do agree. I know like in the Noel Kasler video, uh, video uh, podcast that I did, one of the things that he thought that Putin – well, I say Putin has everything on Trump, and, you know, he thought that – what happened during Helsinki was that Putin showed him a video of Trump, you know, abusing a young girl, mm -hmm. both sexually and physically. That's what his theory is. And and so when, when I think in terms of puppet, I just mean I think that, you know, it's I think it's more complicated, like what you're explaining. But I think just in the very easy to understand that they have compromise on this guy. And because they have this compromise, they own him, period. You know, so so it's like if Putin wants to um, suggest, you know how like Michael Cohen said when he was being when he was uh, in front of Congress and he said something like Trump never says, you know, go go do this crime. You know, he doesn't spell mm -hmm. it out. He said, oh, it would really be sad if, you know, this happened. So so mm -hmm. making that suggestion. So I could easily see Putin. Um, whether he's directly speaking with Trump or speaking with somebody that will speak with Trump, that would make that suggestion and Trump would immediately understand what it would mean and then follows those directions because he does not want anything coming out that's going to embarrass him or upset him or whatever. And so I think that I, while I agree with you that it is much more complicated and deep than just simply referring to him as a puppet, I do think they have like everything on him, everything, whatever they it surely, is. They, they surely do. This is a man who spent time in, in, in Moscow with shady beauty pageants, you know, and not to mention all the, the, the loans and financial deals. Uh, so un undoubtedly, they have a whole lot of leverage over Trump, the, the Russian mob and, and the Kremlin. Yeah, I certainly don't deny that. Yeah. Um, but I don't think, you know, they're sending him orders on a like secret yeah, no, me, ticker in the Oval so. Office. I don't think so either. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, every once in a while there's one of those vague, you know, oh, it would be a pity if this happened, you know, whatever it is that they want him to if they if they don't want him to enforce sanctions or whatever it would be, you know, mm -hmm. but I, but I think, though, I think the over the, the bigger picture is, you know, it's funny, my boyfriend is a political writer. And sometimes I make comments about Putin, um, you know, not, and, and I'll say like ordering Trump to do something. I don't mean literally. I never mean literally. But I think that the bigger picture is you know, uh, oh God, I, I can't think of his name, but it's a comedian and I always forget his name, but he did, he did the bit about 
um, comparing Trump to being a horse loose in a hospital. John hmm. Mul- Mulrooney? I don't remember. Anyway, um, John Mulaney. It's the fun. If you haven't seen it, just Google horse in the hospital. It is so good. It is so good. And it okay. is so Trump. But, um, you know, getting Trump installed into the presidency you you know that was kind of like the point that was he knew that trump would just be terrible and destroy mm. democracy and so he doesn't necessarily have to give him any particular orders i mean i'm sure there's every once in a while there's maybe something that he'd like to see and and that's maybe suggested but overall just just the sure. horse in the hospital is ruining everything <laughs> i mean i think i think putin understands that trump being in the position he's in is not going to make uh you know any moves that he can avoid making that will be, um, you know, upsetting from a Russian foreign policy perspective. Um, But at the same time, the big goal was indeed uh, of of this influence campaign, which likely, likely, um, you know, was a, or maybe the deciding factor in the 2016 election. We we don't know. Right. Because again, all this bigotry that Trump embodies is, is homegrown. Yes, it is. And a third of our population loves him. Yeah, and, legitimately. You know, there yeah. are people like Mitch McConnell are pursuing these these ends by uh, any and every means, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, he's the one who kept the intelligence on this influence campaign from coming out during the election. And then meanwhile, you have James Comey coming out with, we have reopened our investigation on Clinton. Yes. Oh, LOL, just kidding. <laughs> you know, right. um, <laughs> I mean, I think that really all affected a whole lot maybe more than the Russian influence campaign, but from Putin's perspective, from the Kremlin's perspective, yeah, the Russian influence campaign has paid off in spades. They got yeah. what they wanted. They seriously undermined mm-hmm. American democracy, possibly destroyed it. And even if we somehow start on a path now toward a more democratic future, we face huge obstacles, uh-huh. major distrust between yeah. different groups in our population and much more distrust in our institutions um, which Putin has, you mm-hmm. know, the, the Russian influence campaign has exacerbated and the manipulation yes. of social media has exacerbated, but they did not create these right. divisions. You know, these divisions go back to the mm-hmm. Civil War and even before. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, they definitely exacerbated it. And it's, you know, I mean, there's, it, it's for me though, like coming from the perspective of seeing what Soviet Russia looked like and understanding that there could be an existence like that. You know, a lot of Americans can't even imagine that. In fact, I had done, you know, I think I sent you the thing that I wrote when I was 12 years old, uh, living in Russia. My, 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 was he was social studies teacher at the end of the school year, talked to all the children who were going back to the States and said, look, there's going to be a desire for you to want to talk about this, but your friends and even most adults aren't going to care. They're going to glaze mm-hmm, over. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, I read, I read that. Yeah, and, and it I was really true. Reading your reflections. Oh, thank you. I know mean, it was just from a kid's point of view, but it was true because nobody cared because nobody could even fully understand what I was mm-hmm, talking about. Mm-hmm. So if I tried to bring up one of my, you know, experiences, it meant nothing to them because they just didn't have an idea. And so sure, I feel sure. like you know you look and at in what's, my experience, you know, post-Soviet Russia in recent years has also become increasingly unlivable. Yeah, it's not like exit visas are coming back right it's not like all the same it's not like you can't go out in moscow and get sushi yeah just about anywhere you know but but still 
it's it's a it's a softer authoritarianism, right? And um and it's it's oppressive. Yeah, and it's something that I you know I mean I didn't ever think the Soviet like the the United States was going to turn into the Soviet Union, but I knew that it would be more like a modern Soviet Union or or Russia, I should say. And yeah, yeah, no, I keep saying honestly, like America's getting more and more like Russia all the time. Yeah. <laughs> And it's not fun. And, I don't like it. <laughs> no, I don't, I, don't, I don't either. And, you know, I mean, America and Russia make great frenemies, honestly, though, yeah. because among our conservatives and our, our understanding of, you know, what I would call a toxic idea of patriotism, mm-hmm. we just have so much in common. Yeah. Conspiracy theories? Hell, you know, right. in the Christian right, George Soros conspiracy theories yeah. were around in the 90s. They were also around in Russia in the 90s. Yeah. Everyone hates George Soros. Because he likes democracy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you know, I could talk to you for hours and hours, but I got to cut this off. Number one, because my back is killing me and I got to get out of this. I'm just so, so uh, irritated. I got, I think it was Sunday. I don't know. I think it was Sunday. My back started hurting. I'm a little worried because I remember in 2008, I had a back a backache that lasted for six weeks. And I'm, I'm afraid of the chiropractor. And I know that, like, my mom goes to the chiropractor several times a week. And I just have the, and my boyfriend's brother is a chiropractor. And so I, mm-hmm. I know there's no real reason to be afraid of them, but I fear them. And especially during COVID, I'm just, you know, I can't, I can't justify. Yeah. I so, was actually going back to the chiropractor and it's something that I'd done in the past for a while too, before COVID. And now I, I won't go, even though my chiropractor is right. like, my office is open again. Yeah. I'm like, I can't. dude, I've I'm seen your afraid. office and it doesn't look like the <laughs> cleanest in the world. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just, I, you know, I mean, my mom needs it. And so, you know, she has pain in various parts of her body. She's in her 70s. She's about to have hip surgery. And so, uh, you know, she keeps telling me, I know you don't like it, but I'm not doing it. So um, I'm just going to have to, you know, hopefully it won't be a six week issue like it was back in 2008, which, by the way, I had a, I've already voted, but I voted for Obama with a bad back and standing in line. And it wasn't a, it wasn't like a crazy line. I was in Los Angeles, so it wasn't like, you know, I mean, it was a blue state. But it was a line. I probably waited for about 45 minutes and it was kind of drizzly and my back was out. I think I had a cane or a crutch or something like that. So Wait, did, I, you, did you say Obama? Are you describing the current election or the previous election? No, I'm t- I, the 2008 election. That's when my back, oh, yeah, my back sorry, went. Sorry, I got confused. I got confused <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had a backache for like six weeks <laughs> oh, at that great. time. And I've never yeah. had a backache for that long. And so anyway. Uh, I hope that uh, doesn't happen again. I'm sorry about I your back know. problems. But I'm, hope, no fun. I'm hoping, though, that since um, I've already voted and I have a backache, it's like an omen of 2008 and the whole world will be dancing and celebrating when Joe Biden wins. Please, please, because that's what they did when Obama won. And it's not that, Ob- <laughs> it's not that Biden is the most exciting guy or anything but we all know it's like okay well it's either the death of america or you know, <laughs> or, you know maybe one more chance yes exactly <laughs> yeah. so um but it was fascinating talking to you uh and i appreciate you for coming on the show and your writings are just so super fantastic which we didn't even really get into but everybody should check out your writing so why don't you tell people where they can find you Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me, Kimberly. Yes, I really enjoyed the chat. I could definitely talk to you for a long time (laughs) about all this stuff. I am pretty easily accessible on Twitter. My Twitter is at C underscore Stroop, S-T-R-O-O-P. I have a website at cstroop.com. And I'd uh, appreciate it if people would check out my my book, my co-edited anthology of essays with Lauren O'Neill, Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church. We're also working on a, a second volume of that. Well, oh, cool. it's going to be a little bit different to expand the ex-fundamentalist conversation. There's a call for submissions out there. So 
oh, if people cool. might find that and share that around, we would yeah. greatly appreciate it. All right. Well, then what I'm going to do is I will include those first two links where I usually do, but then I'm just going to include in the description of the show, since you're the author of that book, I'll put the name of the book and I will link that book to the Amazon page. And so everybody could check that out. And yeah, I guess you can on, on your website is the calls for those stories. And, you know, I think that's actually such, it's so great because there's a lot of people who um, I think that will identify and, and really find all this fascinating. So um, awesome. Thank you for being on the show. And thanks. Yeah, it was great. Oh, one small correction there. That call is not on my website, but I guess it should be. Oh, but okay. it's just, it's a, it's a Google doc. <laughs> <Okay>. um. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and where would they find that Google doc? Um, I'll have to send you the link. Sorry. Okay, send, no, send me the link, and then what I'll do is I'll I'll figure out a way to put it in there, and um and then we can just go from there. Thanks. Yeah. Sorry for complicating things. Well, don't worry about it. Don't things. worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're casual around here. Everything's cash. So all right, you take care, and uh, you take. I'll see you. Right, I'll see you on you Twitter. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. Wow, I could have talked to her for a long time, especially especially her experiences in Russia. I love when I get to talk to people about Russia, especially, too, because going back to what my seventh grade teacher told us about not, you know, people not wanting to know. And that was just so the truth. Every time I would try to relay any kind of story, my, you know, 13 year olds, they don't give a shit, (laughs) especially 13 year old American privileged kids, because even your most privileged or I'm sorry, even like. One of the kids here who, you know, when I came back from Russia, I lived in in Silver Lake, California. And so there was this real difference of the kind of student there. There were the students that were children of people in the industry. Like, I remember there was this one guy who went to my school and his father wrote for like Remington Steel or something. And then there were there were other kinds of people who went to our school that were like literal gang members. Uh, it, in our school, it was the stoners because back in that day, and I, I, I imagine it's still going on, but there was the stoners and the cholos. And so our school was not a cholo school. Our school was a stoner school, but it was, it was kind of like the kids of the gang members. And so we really did have, um, it was, you know, I, I can't say that my experience there was frightening or anything. I mean, there was one time when I was walk. It was I was walking home from school with my girlfriends, and of course, we liked some of the guys from the Stoners. There was this one guy named Alberto. I won't say his last name, but it wouldn't matter because it's fairly common. It's like a Johnson. It's like the Mexican Johnson. So, like, I'm sure there's a million guys with this name, and you couldn't pinpoint him. But he was a babe, and even my mom saw him one time, and she's like, "Oh my god, like <laughs> he was cute. He was a total freaking babe." And so he was one of the Stoners, and there was you know a bunch of them. I had a crush on this guy Jeff, who was he was a Stoner, and when I say stoners i mean i'm sure they did smoke pot but they were just called the stoners and then they they were the stoners 13 gang and so like the the deal is all the all the kids in school would write or like if you were good at art you would draw a pot leaf and then in the gang writing you would write stoners 13 (laughs) whatever so anyway um i forget what my original point was about this except to say that you know when i came back to oh that's what it is when I came back to the states I was going to school with these people so you know I mean I was going to school with kids that were extremely privileged and kids that were you know gang members 
And even the American gang members had it better off than Russians, at least at that time. So, you know, I mean, nobody gave a shit. And I really had to just keep it to myself. Even adults weren't very interested because nobody could understand what it was like to be an American living in a police state. It was just something you can't even, you can't even imagine. You'd have to experience it. So she didn't live in Soviet Russia, but she understands very clearly the history of Russia and, and what's going on now. And it's just so exciting because um, that was such a special time in my life. I really have fond memories. And the worst part about it, this makes me so upset, is that I had my yearbook, which meant the world to me, meant the world to me. I loved that school. And I had it grouped in with a number. I used to collect magazines, 17, Cosmopolitan, whatever. So I had my yearbook grouped in with them. And I decided at some point that I was just going to get rid of all my magazines. And I threw them all away. And then, you know, like a year later or whatever it was, I was like, (gasps) I went looking for my, you know, I was like, I I realized, oh my God, I threw it away. I threw away my yearbook and just so bummed. The only saving grace about that is that there is a group on Facebook for people who went to Anglo-American school and a number of my schoolmates are in that group and they've posted pictures of the yearbook. So I did get some of those pictures back. And also I got some cool pictures uh, that, weren't in the yearbook but just taken by my friends so pictures of the school that I went to there was like the back lot it was, an, it was a big grassy area that during the winter time was turned into an ice skating rink and in the summer it was just grass and you could play football or whatever but there were there's photographs of that so at least I get to see that but it just kills me that I threw away my fucking yearbook it meant everything to me Ugh. but anyway so um I don't know if you guys checked out my impromptu <laughs> my impromptu podcast yesterday, but just in case you didn't, I do include, it's for patrons only, and I include a link to this video, this homemade music video that I was in with a friend. His name is Mick, and he's a dancer, a professional dancer, and we would, he, he loved to make these homemade music videos. It was just so much fun. Sometimes they would be like legitimate dance reels for his dancer friends, and then, but you know, I, I was in two of them. I put one of them up, with, and so it was me and my best friend Mickey, and we just would do lips, we would lip sync as if we were the stars of these videos, and we would just make our own music videos, and we'd have professional dancers dance in them. So I included a link to that, and I want to remind you all again, the quality isn't great, because A, it's on a VHS from the 80s, and B, he recorded it off of his phone, or, or from his phone off of the television. But it's, it's, it's good enough that you can, you, know, you can see who we are, and it's just every once in a while there's some blurriness to it or whatever. But overall, you can, you can get the gist, and it's kind of funny. I look at it, and I just think, wow. I remember when Mick would make, we'd make these videos, and Mick would always say, memories we're creating memories and he's the one I think I might have said this on my podcast before but he uh, I can't remember but he was like my best friend for a while and he's from Modesto California but he's also I think he's he's Mormon but I don't think I think he might have a house in Utah now I'm not sure he's Mormon but uh and, and he does follow the Mormon religion but he was also you know not 
always so Mormon. I don't know how else to say it. I don't want to talk too much about his private life. But I mean, he was really fun. We had a shit ton of fun making these videos. And he would, um, <laughs> I have this story that's so funny is that he was like, he lived upstairs for me. And he was always, he was one of those people that always needed to be with someone. He couldn't be alone. He was like, he's very, very energetic. If we went to, like, I remember one time we went to Sizzler. I think I told this story before, but it, we, we went to Sizzler and we were in line and Mick was just standing there dancing. And he's always dancing. He's like kickball change. And he's always like moving. And he just, he's always busy. He's just like this crazy, so much energy. And it was not cocaine fueled. It was natural. The guy had all kinds of energy. And so... There was this one time where the girl in the video with me, my best friend, her name is Mickey, uh, she lived more toward Hollywood. I was in Silver Lake, and or I should say Las Feliz. And so Mick would come down every morning. Every morning, every morning, he would like immediately, he was there and he wanted to have coffee and talk and but, you know, he just didn't want to be alone. And I think at this point he was alone. Usually he had roommates, but he had this one, like, time where there were no roommates. And so he was constantly, he just was attached to me. And, I mean, I loved it, but I also wanted just, like, a freaking break, you know. So I went over to Mickey's house and I spent the night there. And I remember <laughs> it was, like, 9.30 in the morning. And I, what wakes me up is him calling my name and he was driving, he knew the street she lived on, but he didn't know the apartment. So he's just driving up and down the street and he's going, Kim, Kim, <laughs> uh, Bob actually calls me Kim because I mock Mick, but it was just so much fun. I had more fun than I can even tell you making these videos we made a bunch of them i i did a couple where i was the like the lead and then i did i was the girl in a couple of you know dance reels or if, if somebody else was in a video and they were the lead i was like one of the girls <laughs> it was like just so much fun i i loved it so anyway i did a patrons only show uh unexpected i didn't expect to do it but i did an impromptu one yesterday and that's for any patron any dollar amount you can watch it uh, so if you're interested and I guess that's going to be it for me today. This is the last show of the week and I hope everybody survives. This Amy COVID Barrett thing is just too much for me. I can't fucking watch it because she's worse than Brett Kavanaugh to me. She's a woman. I can't take it. I can't take it. So, um, I don't know what's going to happen. I keep doing these affirmations that Joy Reid, like I hear Joy Reid saying, Senate Republicans failed to confirm Amy Comey, Amy Comey. I keep wanting to say Amy Comey. Senate Republicans failed to confirm Amy Coney Barrett. And then and then I add something at the end, like, you know, in a big blow to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. So I like keep hearing that in my head over and over on a loop because I'm trying to make it happen. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine it into existence. And I know that's that's I know I know, but I try because it's the only thing that gets me through this. And, and you know, I also visualize Biden, his inauguration. So I hope you guys have a good week. This week is kind of hard for me because of her and my back is out. I'm sure you're sick and tired of hearing about my back now anyway. <laughs> so that's it. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Author Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y. Don't forget that extra E at the the, the end of my name and then um, obviously you can find my books on Amazon which I won't go over because I do every show but I do have that book Peyton's Choice about teen abortion and every time I mention it it seems like one sells so I have a book on teen abortion called Peyton's Choice 
I will see you guys next Monday. I think next Monday. Who's on? Hold on. Let me look. Is it going to? It's. I think it's Hank Gilbert. I, he was going to be on today, but there was a, a, there was a, it was my mix up. I thought that I for, I forgot that I had booked Chrissy for this day. I thought I had booked Chrissy at a later date. Long story short, I announced on Bob's show that Hank was going to be on today, but he's really going to be on on Monday. And I love him. He's the guy who's running against Louis, Louis Gormert and I love him and I hope you listen. And then on the, let me see. And then I, and 22nd, I'm waiting for confirmation on the 26th of October. Jody Hamilton's back. I love her. I can't wait. So I will see you. I'm going to shut up now and I will see you all next week. Bye-bye.